really this is all about Jesus. And it's coming in this time when there is great, great uh, persecution and trials upon his life. Here he is, and, and the, his ministry is ramped up. It's going, and yet at the same time, he's facing this intense, intense persecution. So much so that he actually has to flee. It says that the Pharisees went out conspiring against Jesus on how to destroy him, how to put him to death. And he literally has to flee. It wasn't his time to die. He was to be the Passover lamb, and his time was not yet finished in all of his ministry that he still had yet to do. Think of this, first of all, looking at verse 13. Let's turn our eyes and our gaze upon Jesus. First of all, we see here that Jesus is God's servant. And in fact, he's his chosen servant. Verse 18. Behold my servant whom I have chosen. How did he, how was he chosen for this service? Well, God the Father chose him to do a particular task. First of all, to humble himself, to be born a helpless infant. To live this perfect life that you and I could never live because we've inherited the sin and nature that we've inherited from Adam. Don't you find it so easy to sin? I mean... I don't really have to psych myself up about, hey, I need to get angry right now. Or I need to really be bitter towards this person right now. I find that very natural. Actually, to do the right thing, I find very hard. We cannot live this perfect life, yet Jesus can. He fulfilled the law that you and I cannot keep. In fact, if you read Romans chapter 7, uh, Paul makes this claim that because of the law... Because it's put out there, we find ourselves even sinning all the more. The law, in one sense, enrages our sin nature and causes us to act that out. Have you ever seen this? And Especially if you work with children, you tell a child no, and they just want to do it all the more. Do you tell them no? It's the same with God's law. God tells us don't do this, and in our flesh we want to do it all the more. Why does God... Give us the law to show us our sin nature, to show us our great need, that we need a Savior. And so Jesus lived this perfect life, fulfilling the law. He was chosen to do that. He was chosen to go to the cross, to die this perfect death, to propitiate, to appease the Father's wrath as a holy judge, to take our sins upon himself and to die in our place with the death that we deserve. He was chosen to rise from the dead. Why? So that we could have confidence in what he said was true. That we could have confidence that by trusting in what who he is and what he's done, we too can be resurrected unto life eternal. But look again in chapter 12, verse 18. He's not only this servant whom the Father has chosen, he's called his beloved. The one with that is well-pleasing to the Father. Consider this. Here is God the Father. The one whom all the universe and all of human existence hinges upon. And the one he loves the most, his son, he sends. He gives up what is most precious for us. And how well should we look and see the work of Jesus and the redemption that is brought through his sacrifice and see how pleasing that is to the Father? God must be most pleased and most joyous over the saving of sinners through his chosen son. Looking also in verse 18, it says, I will put my spirit upon him. 
consider that this whole thing that is playing out here that was prophesied in Isaiah that Matthew picks up on and saying Jesus is literally fulfilling this, it's a work of the triune God. It's the work of the Trinity. You have God the Father commissioning the Son for this service. You have the Spirit equipping the Son and executing uh, what Jesus needed to do. And you have Jesus going out and fulfilling fulfilling everything, the Son being the mediator between God and man. And so our redemption is founded upon the joint agreement of all three members of the Trinity, and we can even see it in this verse. God the Father choosing, the Son executing this, the Spirit equipping. That's a fulfillment of prophecy. Lastly, it says that Jesus would proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He would bring about justice. He would wrap up the whole of human existence. There will be a day when he will come again. And all the rights will be rewarded and all the wrongs will be punished. Now, how did Jesus pursue this? According to verse 19, he, he pursued it with humility. His voice shall not be heard. He will not quarrel or cry out loud. We would think such a, a king, God, coming down here in human flesh, that he would come down here with this pomp and grandeur that is rightfully due him. But no, he comes in meekness and in humility. Here's the thing. Jesus also seeks those who have been humbled themselves and see a great need. This really is what le is leading us up into verse 20. Those who have been humbled by the weight of their sin and with a guilty conscience Here's this humble Christ calling us to him. Consider the words of Jesus. Come to me, all ye who labor and who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, drink. Isaiah 55, verse 1. Here's this humble Christ calling sinners who have been humbled by their sin, see themselves as low, needing mercy and grace, to come to him. Now let's pick up in verse 20. And I do want to spend the majority of what we have left in here. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. Christians are compared here to bruised reeds. Not great, grand trees, but hollow reeds. We are not whole, we are bruised. A bruised reed was, uh, in the ancient days, what they would do, especially if you were a shepherd, you would go and you would uh, cut one. And being hollow, you can actually turn them into musical instruments like flutes. And this would be something, especially, again, if you're a shepherd, you would be quite good at. You have a lot of time on your hands. However, once the reed got bruised or cracked, you couldn't make any music with it anymore. It became useless. Shepherds just break it, throw it away, cut another reed down, make another tree. Same thing with the smoldering wick. Became lamps, candles. It burns all the way down. And what do you get? Really no light and all smoke. Not really good for anything at that point, except to put it out. Yeah. 
we as Christians need to embrace our weaknesses. Does not Scripture say that we are compared to weak things? We are duped amongst fools. We have childlike faith and dependence, not adult-like faith. The church is compared to a woman as the bride of Christ, which is the weaker vessel, according to Scripture. God must first make us nothing before he'll use us to do anything great. A lot of times we fight against that because it's a hurting process to get there. And so what does it mean to be bruised? The only way I could look at this is is to say that, you know, a person who's bruised is in some degree of misery, some degree of pain. And thus seeing themselves in misery and pain, they come to Christ for help. We can see this as, first of all, the misery over sin. We're brought to see our sin and what it is, and it causes us great anguish and grief. We're sensible to our sin. We see no help in and of ourselves. We are most desperate. And we flee to Christ as the only one who can help us. As the only source of mercy and hope. Such a person is poor in spirit. With such beatitudes. Seeing his wants seeing himself as nothing, bankrupt spiritually before God and indebted to divine judgment. Such a person who is bruised is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at God's word, Isaiah 66.2. Such the bruised one is like Paul who cries out, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Romans 7.23. It's the misery over sin. Yet at the same time, we could see this. It's not just sin. Sometimes we're miserable, we're bruised, just by the sanctifying process. And it's not due to any particular sin in our lives. Consider Job. I don't think there's ever been a person more put down by this world and just destroyed in a day than that man. Losing everything he had in his family, his health the next day. He just wanted to die. He was at that point. He had lost most hope. And yet, what did God say of the man? He's a blameless and upright man who feared God and turned away from evil. That was God's own assessment of Job. And so the bruising that took place upon Job was not due to any sin. But it was to sanctify Job and make him more like Christ. Because Christ was bruised. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Is not our greatest desire to be like our Savior? That does not come easily. To bring us to that point, Christ had to die. Do we think we can just get there without any pain or struggle in this sinful world? There are good effects of this bruising. Think about it. I don't know where everyone stands here today. Maybe you're in Christ. Maybe you need to be saved by Christ still. But think about how precious being put under these trials is before being saved. Before being converted, we need to be bruised so that we can understand what we are by nature. Our hearts like criminals must be bruised or punished. Why? So it would empty us of all our self-justifying excuses over our sin. We're brought to cry out for the mercy of the judge. 
As Phil went through Acts chapter 2, and Peter was preaching, uh, preaching on the day of Pentecost, and he gets and drives home the point, you put to death the prince of life. You killed the Messiah. There's the bruising. The crowd interrupts his sermon, crying out, what must we do to be saved? Bruising is essential to bring us to salvation. Why? Because it makes us understand the infinite value of Jesus, his sacrifice, his imputed righteousness. It is only after that we are afflicted and bruised that the gospel actually becomes good news. Before that, it really isn't good news. All it is is an additive to your life. Hey, you want to accept Jesus? Sure. I'll accept him just like I accepted membership into this club and how I do this on this time. And I'll make a little bit of room in Jesus into my life as an add-on. He can be the appendix to my book. But if we are brought to the point of being most desperate, without hope, seeing our sins as laying us in the dust, then the gospel that Christ would die for us and pay the penalty of our sin all of a sudden becomes great news indeed. That we no longer have to face him as judge, but as friend. Not as the wrathful God of righteousness, but as our redeemer. Sometimes I think the gospel is not good news unless we get to that point of desperation. Because it's only after that the fig leaves of our self-righteousness, the thin veneer like an Ikea table of our self-righteousness is exposed. that morality will do us no good. Only Christ's righteousness. What about after we're saved? Okay, we need to be put through trials before salvation. What about after salvation? I, I can think of some reasons why this is really important. First of all, I would say it's needed to keep us humble so that we can know that we're reeds and not oaks. We need that. Think of Peter. He's saved. He's a saved man. Even though if anyone else denies you, I will be with you, Lord. If everyone else forsakes you, I will be there. I'll never forsake you. Peter, you're going to deny me three, day, three times before this night is ever done. There's the bruising. You think you're that, Peter? You're putting way too much confidence in yourself. You will utterly deny me three times, even calling curses down upon yourself in doing so. What about Paul? Has this heavenly vision, whether he actually goes up to heaven and sees it, or just a vision of heaven, and he's elated. He can't even express it. How amazing it is. Yet it says in 2 Corinthians 12, 7, so that he wouldn't become too boastful or proud, God sent this messenger, this thorn in his flesh, to keep him humble. There's the bruising. We also, I think, need bruising even after salvations. Salvation to help weaker Christians from not being too discouraged. People who just start out in the faith and are really struggling with sin. I know I do. We see our own frail walk in the faith. And then yet we see a believer who's more mature in the faith being bruised, being put through these trials, going through hard times. And in some way, it actually strengthens and comforts us. Consider how many people have been comforted over the centuries just through Job's bruising, his struggles, his trials, his 
I could also see it as needed so that we may learn not to pass harsh judgment on others who are struggling with sin and are being disciplined by the Lord. When God places on others or even on ourselves, bruising upon bruising, we can just get almost too discouraged if we didn't have a text like this. If we didn't have texts like in Peter and in James that talks about trials having a good effect in our lives. And I think one of the biggest reasons why we need this bruising is so that we would know that this land, this earth is not our home. That we're aliens, we're pilgrims, we're making a pilgrimage towards heaven. We are to prize the city whose designer and builder is God. Our heavenly dwelling. And not get so caught up and wrapped up and in love with the things here. We need that. We need this bruising. Now look, it says of the bruised reed, this one who's in misery, this one who is cracked, there's flaws. It says that Jesus will not break the bruised reed. In pursuing his calling, Jesus will not break the bruised reed, but will cherish. Will cherish the one whom he bruises. Do we not see that he deals most mercifully and tenderly to those who are the weakest through their bruising? Don't we even see this in human nature? Let's say you have multiple children. Isn't it the child that is sick that you just you pour out your affection to at that time on the most? tenderly care for the most. They need it. It's through this bruising that we're brought down to be weak and we could only turn to God. And that is where we find the greatest mercy and greatest tenderness and greatest compassion and heart that the Lord has for us. Not when we find ourselves to be strong and big God. God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Those who are low. Think about Jesus and just his names would show this tender compassion and mercy. There's the metaphoric names that he gets from the animal kingdom, like he's a hen or a lamb. This both show his tender care towards his children. There's his office as a savior, Jesus as the savior. He's the one who will bind up the brokenhearted, Isaiah 61.1. There's his office as a prophet. He came with blessing upon his lips. Think of the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. Think of Jesus as a shepherd. It says of Christ that he will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Isaiah 40 verse 10. Think of Jesus as the friend of sinners. According to Luke 7 34. Again, his tender care there. Think of him and his majesty as king. He's the Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9, verse 6. He's the mediator, according to 1 Timothy 2, 5. He suffered and died and rose from the grave to be the mediator between God and man. And as the high priest, Jesus was tempted in all ways, yet without sin. Why? So that he could be a perfect and sympathetic high priest to us broken weak who struggle for us to draw near to him. 
other parts of Hebrews 4.15. So we have this bruising, and it's, it's hard. It's hard to go through these trials, and yet here we see only through these times, Jesus is the most humble towards us. He's also related to, look in verse uh, 20 in Matthew chapter 12. It says that not just a bruised reed he will not break, but a smoldering wick he's not going to put out. Think about a smoldering wick. There's only a little tiny weak light. You would look at it and you wouldn't really see hardly any light. There's a little bit of heat coming off, and you only really know that from the smoke. It's more smoke than light. And I think from this, we can observe a few things about us as Christians. First, at conversion, there's only just but a little measure of those things. We see this in a little tiny light. Secondly, at conversion, there's still much corruption. There's much smoke in us. We still struggle with our sinful nature. And yet, despite the small grace mixed with indwelling corruption, Jesus Christ will not quench the smoldering wick. How often this week have you just gone through and you've made plans, you've made resolutions not to do certain things. You were convicted last week at a Sunday or you read something in your scripture and you said, yes, I need to do that. And then even by the end of the week, you find yourself failing. Yet the good that you want to do, you find yourself so hard to do. And the bad that you don't want to do, you find yourself easily running into it. And your heart inside of you cries out, Lord, help me. Help me. Our faith is not what it should be. Not a single one of us in this room. But instead of that, letting that get us down, instead of that letting us cause us despair, we need to look at that as Christ looks at that. Christ looks at us as what we are to become. think about my parents' place, and they had this tree out in their front yard for a long time, and it was huge. But I remember when they planted it. I went in and actually made fun of them. Why are you putting that little stick in the ground? What is that? I mean, it was tiny, and it looked like a stick. Just because it was a little tiny plant didn't make it any less of a tree. Just because our faith is little and we struggle doesn't make it any less faith. It's faith. It's faith in Christ. Our faith starts off as small. And a lot of times it seems like we take two steps forward in faith and about one or two steps back at the same time. And our growth at times can be seen very measurable and big. And at other times, we just scratch our head and wonder, Lord, do I even really believe? I don't seem to be growing in this season. It's like I'm in hibernation. And yet, listen to the words of Jesus. In Matthew 17, verse 20, it says, Our faith may be compared to a grain of a mustard seed. 
And yet he says that even though our faith may be small, tiny, hardly even visible to the eye, it can do great things. Touches moves mountains. Why? Because it's faith in God. Sometimes I think we're so caught up in measuring the amount of our faith, we need to be measuring the direction of our faith. Is it in Christ? We might be discouraged and we're struggling through lives. And even like me, as, as all these situations were happening to those who are, I love, and I just got angry at God. The real issue was God was also working on me through that to grow my faith and trust and dependence upon him. We may be like the, the father of the demon-possessed man in Mark chapter 9. He goes after Jesus. There's nowhere else he can go. He loves his son. The son is in a bad, bad situation, possessed by a demon. You want to talk about a trial. Break any father's heart. Jesus says to the man, anything's possible for those who believe. Right there, that man takes an honest assessment of himself, a very honest assessment. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Lord, I'm the switch. There is belief. There is a bit of flame there. There's a lot of smoke. be kind of like Thomas. Don't we see him in scripture doing the same thing? Here's a man who really loved the Lord. Um, think about just the whole thing going back with Lazarus. When Jesus and his disciples, well when Jesus said we're going to go back to Judea, the disciples thought him crazy. Everybody wants to kill you there and you're going to go back? You're going to go back to that place? The Pharisees want you dead. And you're marching in on their team. We see Thomas actually saying one of the most profound things and measures of faith in Scripture when he says, okay, guys, let's go with him so that we may die with Jesus. He'd rather be dead with Jesus than to live without him. Yeah, and so we see the light of faith there. After the resurrection, Jesus appears to 10 of the 11 disciples. Thomas wasn't there. Thomas makes a statement, I will not believe, not unless I put my hands where he appears. Do you feel that? Not unless I put my hand in his side. I simply won't believe. There's the smoke. Even his faith was intermingled with unbelief, with, with hardships that he was struggling through in his faith. And much could be said about many other people. Consider Peter. He blows it. goes back to the Sea of Galilee and starts to become a fisherman again instead of a fisher of men. And Jesus appears to him and the other disciples who were there on the bank, calls them in, they have fish together, they have a meal. And Jesus, turning his attention towards Peter, says, Peter, 
do you agapeo, do you love me more than these, these other men? Peter would have blown it. Before he had blown it, he would have said, oh, yeah, Lord, I, I love you supremely. Now he would not say that. In fact, he had even a hard time saying he loved Jesus. He does not say, I agapeo you. I supremely, sacrificially love you more than anything. He says, I phileo you. I love you as a friend. You're my friend, Jesus. Peter, do you agapeo me? I phileo you, Lord. this friendly desire towards you. And it's the third time that really bruised Peter. Peter, do you even phileo me? Are you even my friend? He's devastated. He's bruised. He's weeping. Lord, you know all Jesus tenderly recommissions him. And that's the head disciple. In one sense, the chief apostle. And there was much smoke in his lips. He suffered. How would you love to go before Jesus? And he says, are you even my friend? be rough. As Christians, as smoldering wicks, we grow by degrees. This is what we see is the process of sanctification. Consider this. The giant oak starts out from a small acorn. And our faith might not be the greatest at first. It's going to grow and it's going to be imperfect at times. But we must look at ourselves as to what we are to become. We must see ourselves as Christ sees us. If there is but a, a spark of grace, God will finish that good work in us. We might not be a bright light now, but one day we will, and we'll be a bright lamp so as to let our light shine before all men so that they may see our good works and give glory to our Father in heaven. Let us therefore look to our imperfect beginning and our walk in faith only to enforce a further striving by the grace of God towards perfection and to keep a humble and lowly opinion of ourselves. Secondly, I think we can see that grace, like I said, is mingled with much corruption. Yet if grace be little, it is still grace. Even though there is this aspect of sin indwelling in us. Grace does not do away with our corruption right at first. You know this. It wasn't that the moment you were saved, you stopped having to fight against sin. In fact, no, actually the battle began. And we had to put on the full armor of God and stand strong in the strength that the Lord provides. The Puritans, they used to have this common saying. And, and it kind of ties in with this, that we have this spark of faith, yet there's much smoke, there's much corruption, there's still much sin, there still needs to be much purged from us. They used to have this saying, and it would go something like this. Even our tears of repentance, the very best thing that we could probably do, our tears of repentance, that needs to be washed by the blood of the Lamb. Consider just some of these things. The scriptural examples. Think of David in Psalm 31, 22. Here's the smoke. He says, 
I said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight, God. You don't see me. Yet in the same verse, we see the line. But you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. We see this in the disciples. They're on a boat. A storm comes up. Lord, save us. We are perishing. The smoke of the corruption of their nature causes them to doubt the care that God had for them. And yet the faith that they possess delights. Causes them to cry out to Jesus. To trust in him as the only one who could save them at that moment. Think of Jonah in the belly of the well. The belly of the great fish in Jonah chapter 2 verse 4. We have the smoke when he says, I cry, I am cast out from your sight, God. I'm away from you. And yet we see the light when he says, yet I will look again to your holy temple. We have Paul who said, wretched man that I am, make this known. And yet we see the light when he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. We can see this double principle within us. Faith, good deeds, holiness, yet at the same time, smoke, corruption. Even being put through trials where we might be tempted to distrust God, question his love for us. And this is continually, I think, in one degree or another, working itself out in our lives. We carry around with us both grace and a sinful nature. God causes this so that we would not fall prey to the dangers of self-security, self-trust, pride, but we would rather rest in the free justification of Jesus. Consider this. It says, going back to verse 20, that Jesus will not quench the smoldering wick. We as those who are sometimes more smoke than light, the precious promise is that God will not quench us. He won't extinguish us. He sees that little spark of faith that he himself picked up and he treats it as precious. And that's what we get out of this. Even the tiniest, tiniest faith imaginable in Jesus is precious because it's a gift of God. Do we not see this in how tenderly Jesus dwelt with doubting Thomas? Do we not see this of Jesus going tenderly with these two disciples on the road to Emmaus? They were doubting Jesus at that point. He thought he was going to come in and usher in the kingdom of Israel. He thought he was the Messiah. And they were doubting. Jesus walks with them and opens up their minds to the scriptures. And they leave that experience overjoyed. They run back to tell other disciples and take courage to other people. Consider the seven churches in the book of Revelation. There's some awful things that Jesus said there about them. They had some real sin issues, and he loved them and was going to deal with their sin issues. Yet, at the same time, do we see how tender Jesus is there as he deals with his churches? He sees even the little tiniest thing good in them, and he commends them and encourages them to continue in that. Some of these churches, I mean, I'm glad I'm not because I just would have washed my hand and thrown them away. acknowledges and he cherishes anything that's good in us and he does it in us as well.
the encouragement of all of this is how, really how this ends in Matthew. We're bruised, we're smoldering, but he's not going to break. He's not going to quench. He's not going to put out until he does one thing, until he brings justice to this world. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. If it was up to the world, the world would throw us away. I don't see any value in us, this bruised reed, this smoldering wood. All you have to do is watch TV or look at the news, know what's going on in the world. The world finds no value in us as believers in Christ. They think our faith is a joke. And we even see in the way things are going, they're taking great pains to try to put out that to silence the voice. Yet, despite all the forces that this world has and throws, Christ is the one who is victorious. He is the one leading justice to victory. Despite our even little faith, despite our even failings at times, despite our struggles with the hardships in life, in life where we may doubt God, where we may just cry out to God and just wonder, are you even there? He's going to uphold us until he leads justice to victory. Ultimately, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And as such, he will bring with him all who belong to him. And who have themselves been bruised and smoldering. Therefore, we as Gentiles, we have hope. You'll notice an interesting thing about that text that's actually not found in Isaiah chapter 42, where this is quoted from. It's like Matthew is summarizing everything in there and saying, This is our hope. This is the hope of the whole world, not just for Jews, but for Gentiles as well. We get to the like, so what part? Okay. The real question, I guess, is do you see yourself as bruised? see ourselves as more smoke than light after Christ. A lot of times if we don't, we're seeking out here to those who have not been transformed by grace, have a new nature in them. be that the bruising and the trials and the hardships are meant to break the self-sufficiency so that you may throw yourselves upon the mercy of Jesus who is tender, who is compassionate. Beg you do not despise the Lord's mercy and long suffering with you. He has put these trials in your life as a means to draw you close to him in repentance and in faith. Do not harden your hearts. Do not put him off. He is calling you and commanding you to come to him to find rest for your soul. Are you bruised? broken Christian? Do you have 
acknowledge your smoke? Have times been difficult? Have you been in despair at times lately? And again, just wondered, where are you, Lord? application here I think is best expressed in these words penned by J.C. Ryle. The doctrine here laid down is a full comfort and consolation. There are thousands in every church of Christ to whom it ought to speak peace and hope. There are some in every congregation that hears the gospel who are ready to despair of their own salvation because their strength seems so small. They are full of fears and despondency because their knowledge and their faith and their hope and love appear to be so dwarfish. Oh, let them drink comfort out of this cup. Let them know that weak faith gives a man as real and a true an interest in Christ than those who are strong in faith, though he sometimes will not give them the same joy. There is life in an infant as true as there is in a grown-up man. There is fire in a spark as truly as there is in a burning flame. The least degree of grace is an everlasting possession. For it comes down from heaven. It is precious in the Lord's sight. It shall not be overthrown. In the hard times, when it seems that our faith is weak and failing, let us examine ourselves to see, hey, do we have faith? And if the answer is yes, then let's seek the Lord. It's a gift of God. And let us understand we're in this process where Jesus is going to take us to do some hard things to draw us close to him and to make us more like him. And a lot of times if you're like me, I kick against that. And it's hard. But even in studying through this, and having a really horribly prepared sermon, it's joyful when you can look back on it. Seeing the tender care of God, despite our failings. in light of all this consider the one who has ultimately doomed beaten and despised forsaken by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief a man from whom many hid their faces mocked and tormented one he was a friend of sinners. 